Okay, well, morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Ah, oh, that's we go. Great. Okay. Okay, well, as Andy said, we are in a series, and if you were here last week, um, you will know that Andrew spoke on being filled with the Spirit, and he used a picture where often when we think about being filled with the Spirit, we think of a cup with water, but he said, actually, biblically, it's much better to think of, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, of like breath or wind, and uh, if you didn't get a chance to hear it live, you should listen to the podcast of that. He talked about an experience where he went sailing once and what it was like to catch the wind. Now, that reminded me of my own sailing experience when I was about 14, I think. We went on a holiday abroad as a family, and me and my brothers, I've got two brothers, decided that we would learn how to windsurf. We didn't get any instructions. We just hired these boards on consecutive days, and we, we kind of got okay at it. Until we got to the final day, and on the final day, I decided I'm going to really go for this. So I'm up on my board, I catch the wind, I'm going at like Olympic speed, okay, rapidly out of this bay, and for about 10 minutes, I'm flying out of this thing, and by the end of it, I'm nearer North Africa than I am Spain at this point, okay, so I am going at rapid speed. And after about 10 minutes, I'm like, I'm quite a long way out, I probably should now go back, at which point I discovered that I had no idea how to tack back across the wind and to use the wind back. So to cut a long story short, I survived, as you can tell. But basically, I spent 10 minutes catching the wind and 50 minutes swimming back in, pulling my board back to the beach. So I agree with Andrew that it is much better to catch the wind than to try and do everything in your own strength, which is what he was kind of saying about uh, being filled with the Spirit. So this week... We're going to carry on, and I want to speak on the subject of being baptized in the Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And again, depending on your church background, if you're used to church, if you, you may not be used to church at all, so it might be completely new to you. But if you're from a more conservative church background, this may be a subject that you were never really taught on, you never really spoke about, and it's a bit unfamiliar, maybe a bit uncomfortable. That was more my background. Um, the church I grew up in, we never even talked about the Holy Spirit. The only reference I remember was in what were to me at the time, without offending anybody, incredibly long and boring hymns, which had more verses than the first Noel, which is saying something, okay? And it was like occasionally in that hymn, it would get a reference to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, and I had no idea who that was. Others of us have grown up in a more Pentecostal or maybe charismatic background where teaching on the Holy Spirit and baptism in the Spirit has been very familiar. It might have been a centerpiece, if you like, in terms of theology, in terms of the church you grew up in. And if you have, typically, this may be what you have been taught, that when we talk about baptism in the Spirit from a Pentecostal charismatic background, we often teach that there is a second experience of the Holy Spirit as distinct, if you like, from becoming a Christian. You become a Christian, and then at some other point, at any point in your Christian walk, it could be very quickly after, or a long time after, there might be a second experience, a second blessing, if you like, where someone encounters the Holy Spirit in an undeniable way, And it's distinct from becoming a Christian. And in Pentecostal backgrounds, you've often been taught maybe that the proof that you've been baptized in the Spirit is that you speak in tongues. And that would be a classic Pentecostal charismatic uh, definition of baptism in the Spirit. And this is seen as a unique experience, if you like, where you experience the Spirit in a very unique, you're baptized in the Spirit, and then you get on with the rest of your Christian life, as it were. And this encounter brings great blessing and often unlocks joy and boldness and power. And some of us uh, may have been taught that and also may have experienced that. And 
Um, I grew up in a Methodist church, a traditional church, like I said, when we didn't really talk about it. But I also then, when I was about 14, went to a charismatic church. And that was exactly what I was taught in a charismatic church, that I'd become a Christian, and now I needed to be baptized in the Spirit. And I'm very grateful for everything I received uh, in those times, really. The question I want to ask today, regardless of where you are in terms of what your background is or what you've been taught, is what does the Bible actually say? If we let's go back and go, what does the Bible actually say about baptism in the Spirit. Now, just to give you a little bit of a health warning, lots of very bright, very good people, theologians, disagree on this subject, okay? It's quite a complex subject. And we've got about 20 minutes now together, so we're going to clear everything up, okay? All good? Because you've got me and that. No. So it's complex. We're not going to clear everything up. And we are going to have to work hard because I'm going to make you look at a whole load of different scriptures. So if if by chance someone next to you starts to kind of slip out of focus at all during this service, you have my permission to nudge them, depending on how well you know them. depends on the severity of the nudge you're allowed to give them. Okay? So, now, can I also say this to you? Something of what I might say to you today in terms of my own personal view may surprise you. But I'm asking you to hang in there with me because I'm hoping that by the end of the story we're still all going to be friends. So stay with me until we get to the end. Okay. I thought I'd have your attention if I said that. Right. First thing I want to be very clear on, when it comes to the Holy Spirit and experiencing the Spirit, uh, anybody who comes to faith, who believes in Jesus, who becomes a follower of Jesus, I believe has experienced the Spirit's work in their life. You cannot become a Christian without experiencing the Spirit. John 3, I mean, there are so many verses that illustrate this, but let me take you to two of them. John 3, verse 5 says this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2. But we ought to always give thanks and thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by God, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, you cannot say Jesus is Lord and mean it without having experienced the Spirit's work in your life. The Spirit brings you alive, takes you from death to life, and that is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, that's not a controversial thing to say. Where the controversy is, or where the difference is, is when we talk about baptism in the Spirit, are we talking about, as Pentecostals and Charismatics would traditionally say, that what we're saying is that there is a distinct experience of the Spirit as distinct from being converted. You get converted, and then at some other point, there's an extinct second experience of the Spirit uh, where you encounter the Spirit in a completely different way to becoming a Christian. Now, many people I know, and there might be, I suspect there are many people in this room, would say that is exactly what has happened in my life. I became a Christian, clearly a follower of Jesus, and then on some other occasion, I was clearly baptized in the Holy Spirit, and it unlocked a whole new way of thinking and living as a Christian. And we would say that's exactly what happened. My parents, would, if they were here, would exactly say that very thing. My mum, uh, the daughter of a Methodist minister, conservative kind of background, clearly a Christian, in her later life, came into things of the Spirit in a really miraculous way, and it totally changed her walk with God. Absolutely. My dad followed here, if you like, down that path. And much to his credit, he wasn't a proud guy. He was happy to follow my mum's lead. And, you know, I came into things of the Spirit as well. And I remember being at a Christian meeting where there had been a ministry time. My dad encounters God so powerfully that he's on the floor seeing flashing lights, which was just 
funny and annoying for me because that wasn't what I was experiencing at all. But the fact that my dad, it was like, from his background, it was amazing. And many of us in this room would say that is exactly my experience. I was from a quite a conservative background. I was a Christian. But there was this moment where it's like everything changed because I was experienced the Spirit in a new way. I was, we would call, baptized in the Spirit. And certainly there is a way of reading the Bible that appears to absolutely support this. Okay, let me, particularly as you read through Acts, you seem to get examples of this very thing happening. And Jesus uh, seems to talk about it, and other uh, people talk about it. Jesus says in Acts 1 to the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, wait, because there's a, the Holy Spirit is coming. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what happens in Acts 2. Acts 2 is Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, and there's tongues of fire, and there's the mighty rushing wind, and it is wild stuff, okay? And you go on, Acts 11, Peter reflects back on Acts 1 and goes, oh, I remember the Lord's words, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Acts 8 is a moment in Samaria where they become Christians. Philip has, through his Philip's ministry, Peter and John show up from Jerusalem. They lay on hands and they receive the Spirit and they prophesy and they speak in tongues. Acts 19, something very similar seems to be happening. People have made commitments and then they receive the Spirit as distinct from when they've already become a Christian. So it appears when you read through Acts especially that what we have classically talked about in terms of baptism in the Spirit is absolutely supported when you read through Acts. People have clearly become a Christian and then they have a ex- second experience of God, a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. They are baptized in the Spirit. It's a one-off, powerful moment distinct from conversion. The question I guess I want to ask, and I've asked myself as we're coming to look at this today, is, is that the correct reading of those passages? What we, when we read Acts, is Acts meant to be, if you like, a model, a template, a pattern, if you like, for how we are to expect and anticipate the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I'm going to take you through some verses, and we're going to see what these verses appear to say to us. Now, interestingly this, when it comes to the New Testament, the the words or the phrase baptism in the Spirit, or being baptized in the Spirit, only actually comes up seven times. There's lots of other phrases used, like receiving and indwelling of the Spirit, but being baptized only comes up seven times. And I would say all of them are problematic if you want to try and teach a very tight, defined theology of baptism in the Spirit, that it looks like this and this and this, which is often what we want to do. We want to put God in a box and go, God does it like this and this and this. I'm not sure any of these verses support having a really tight theology on baptism in the Spirit. Let me show you what they are. Four of the seven are in the Gospels where John the Baptist is talking about what Jesus is going to do that Jesus is going to come and baptize people in the Holy Spirit. So that's four of them. They're they're significant verses, but in and of themselves, they're not necessarily a way of showing what kind of things we are to experience going forward. Two of them are references to Pentecost, Acts 2. Now, Acts 2, Pentecost, is a very, very significant moment in church history because it is literally the transition point from the old covenant experience of the Holy Spirit to the new covenant. I'm not saying you're the old covenant, but just as a way of visualizing it, okay? In the old covenant, for those of you from the Old Testament, okay, the Holy Spirit is poured out on individuals at very specific times for very specific ministries. So in other words, he's not fully poured out on all people. 
in the new covenant, and Pentecost is the transition point, in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers and is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, particularly passages like Joel 2, where in those days, my spirit will be poured out on all people and people will dream dreams and, you know, uh, and have visions and you can read it. And Pentecost, if you like, is a unique moment where the, that transition point happens. As such, it's not a moment, it's not the place to try and build a tight theology of baptism in the Spirit. You can't go, look, it happened at Acts 2, therefore it should happen to us. If you do that, I want to suggest you're going to run into trouble. The reason is, is if you say Acts 2 is the example of what it's like to be baptized in the Spirit, you're going to find that pretty much none of us in the room are baptized in the Spirit. Because in Acts 2, there are tongues of fire. How many of us have experienced tongues of fire? Not too many of us, I imagine. Or heard the, the room being filled with wind. You may have experienced aspects of that. But if you push that too hard, that Acts 2 is the example of, of what baptism in the Spirit is like, you will find, quite possibly, that none of us have been baptized in the Spirit. So I don't think you can build it off Pentecost either, basically. So that leaves you with one other verse where it was described, which is in 1 Corinthians 12. All with me? You can give the person next to you a little nudge if you like, okay? 1 Corinthians 12 is a key verse. Now, the background to 1 Corinthians is that Paul is writing to a church who are what we would describe as hyper-spiritual, maybe super, super spiritual people, yeah? They would be, hopefully not trying to be too flippant, but they would be the kind of people that if you took them to Saver Center, they would be praying as they walked down the aisle that God would lead them to the specific can of beans that they should be eating this week. Please show me, God, which can of beans, okay? They would be super, super spiritual people. And Paul is writing to them because he has a concern about how they define spirituality. Namely, that they particularly are defining speaking in tongues as the evidence of almost arrived at a kind of heightened spiritual state. They think that speaking in tongues means that they have, they're speaking a heavenly language and therefore they have arrived at a more superior spiritual state to other people. Whereas Paul writes to them and says, no, 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 no. The real evidence of the presence of God amongst you is not speaking tongues as good as that is. And it is good, speaking tongues. The real evidence of the presence of God amongst you is the fact that you are Jews and Gentiles, you are slaves and free, and somehow through this experience of the Spirit, God has brought you together to form one body. That is the evidence, the primary evidence of God's presence and his Spirit amongst you. Not actually that you speak in tongues as good as that is. So he's trying to redefine for them what spirituality and spiritual maturity and God's presence actually looks like. And therefore, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. We were all baptized by one spirit, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Now, is this the passage on which we can go? Ah, right, good, we have the verse which means that we can teach what we've experienced, that there is a clearly a distinct experience of being baptized in the Spirit as distinct from anything that happens at conversion. And people teach that from this passage because they say, well, look, Paul is giving us two separate experiences of the Spirit. One is you are baptized, and then also you get to drink from the Spirit. Well, I actually don't think that's what that verse means at all. Because I don't think he's making two separate statements about the Spirit. I think he's making one statement about the Spirit said in two different ways. He's saying to them, 
All of you have been baptized in the Spirit. You've all experienced the Spirit. You've all been immersed in the Spirit. You've all been given one Spirit to drink, all the same kind of statement but said in two ways. And therefore, through that experience, you have been brought into, born into the Spirit, into the family of God. You effectively have become Christians. You join the family of God. In other words, I don't think 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 is teaching us that there are two stages to experiencing the Spirit. I think he's talking about one experience of the Spirit, and he's saying it in two different ways. If you've got any questions about that, you can ask Andy at the end. Okay. (laughs) Now, what about the other moments in Acts where you appear to have a Christian, clearly a Christian, who then experiences the Spirit later on? What about those passages? How How do we kind of work through those? What do we think about those? Well, there's three of them primarily, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. Acts 8 is particularly difficult. Acts 8 is a story in Samaria where they have become Christians through Philip uh, and then Peter and John show up and they get baptized, they receive the Spirit. Clearly happens. So what about that? Isn't that an evidence of this? Well, yes, I think it is evidence of this. But I don't think Acts 8, again, is a model for you and I in terms of how we are to experience the Spirit classically. Because Acts 8 is basically like a Samaritan version of Pentecost. Jesus says to the disciples in Acts 1, wait in Jerusalem You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, Samaria is the first moment, if you like, where the Spirit is poured out on people who are non-Jewish. The Samaritan, and that is very significant. The Samaritans were a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles. The Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. Historically, that's why Jesus teaches about them so much. When he tells his parables about what love looks like. And in Acts 8, suddenly you get this moment where the Spirit is poured out on Gentile people as well as Jews. And Acts 8, therefore, is not for us, I think, a pattern of how you can teach a tight theology of a second experience of the Spirit called baptism in the Spirit. Acts 10 is the story of Peter and Cornelius. Nudge someone next to you, stay focused, okay? Well, Acts 10 is, I don't think you can teach that for Acts 10 either, because Acts 10, when you look at it, is Cornelius. I'm not even sure you can argue that Cornelius is even a Christian. I think the best way to understand Acts 10, where Cornelius is baptized and receives the Spirit, is that he becomes a Christian, gets baptized in the Spirit all in one hand, which is basically what happens or should happen. I think that's what Acts 10 is talking about. He's not even a Christian. And Acts 19, which is Ephesus, well, when you look at that, Paul turns up and goes, did you receive the Spirit? Well, he basically then explains the gospel to them. He discovers that they've been baptized but had John's baptism. He explains who Jesus is and who the Spirit is. He then, they then get rebaptized in the name of Jesus, and they receive the Spirit. So again, I don't think you can teach from Acts 19, in any, either or 10 or 8, that clearly there's a pattern that we are to follow when we think of what baptism in the Spirit actually looks like biblically. So I think there are some challenges. I have a challenge. I have a challenge because I'm torn. Because basically, part of me, I want to affirm what many of us have experienced in this room. That we became Christians, and then there have been clear, distinct experiences where we've experienced the Spirit, and it has unlocked a whole new level of being a Christian, or a whole new way of thinking. It's empowered us in a new way. Like I said, I've had, that's happened in my own family, and I'm sure that's happened for many of you in the room. I am, just so you're all clear, a fully signed up, committed charismatic. I'm very grateful for all my background of that. Okay, my issue sometimes with when we talk about being charismatic, just as an aside, is that we want to narrow it down. 
where we think of being a charismatic as to being what happens in a meeting. Actually, that's far too narrow a definition of what a charismatic is. The charismatic is the one who believes in the Spirit's uh, evidence and work in our whole life, not just when we gather together. Although it should be evidenced when we gather together with prophecy and speaking in tongues and all sorts of things. But we don't just narrow it down. But I am a fully signed up. So I want to affirm our experience. However, personally, I think it's a real challenge to teach from the New Testament a tight, defined doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit where we go, it happens like this, and it happens like this, and it happens like this. I think it's very difficult to do that. I think the Bible hardly uses the phrase being baptized in the Spirit. It uses it seven times, like I just said. I think in terms of language, there's all sorts of different phrases that are used. We talk about being indwelled by the Spirit and receiving the Spirit. So experientially, it feels like I see God does it, but theologically, I cannot point to a clear verse which absolutely defines it tightly, that it happens like this and this. So, we're all clear, okay? Great. Well, we'll see you next week. Off you go. No. Stay with me. Okay, let me tell you what I do believe and where I am. And I'm just really saying this is how I view these things and how, where I view this particular issue. First for this, I believe absolutely that the Spirit brings us alive when we are saved. It is a work of the Spirit in our lives. In other words, I want to I assure anybody who's here, who's a Christian, who's worried that somehow maybe I don't have the Spirit. You can't be a Christian without having the Spirit work of the Spirit in your life. Okay? I believe the Spirit only brings us alive to be able to respond to God. I also believe that at that point, when you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit as you become a Christian. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 12 teaches. When Paul says, we were all baptized, we were all given one Spirit to drink, he is referring to, he, remember, he wants to say, no, 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 this is not about how heightened or how good you are in speaking in tongues. This is about a common experience you have all gone through. So not just some of you, but all of you have been through this. And I think he's referring to when they became Christians. 1 Corinthians 10, for those of you who like to look at different passages, if you go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a very similar passage where he says, he talks about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. He says, you were all baptized into Moses. We kind of go, this sounds a bit weird. We were baptized into Moses through the cloud and the sea. So you were baptized into Moses through the cloud. In other words, he says, basically you went through the sea and you went through the cloud of God's presence and you came into, together, Moses' covenant. Well, that's a parallel verse to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is saying, you all experienced the Spirit when you became a Christian. You were all given one Spirit to drink. And through that experience, you have been born again into the family of God. So I believe 1 Corinthians 12 is teaching that you receive the Spirit when you become a Christian. That's what I believe it's teaching. I think he teaches the same thing in Galatians. He says this, did you receive the Spirit by Torah observation? In other words, by obeying the law or by believing what you heard. And then he says this, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to bring completion through the flesh? In other words, he's saying, right at the start, you began with the Spirit, and now you're trying to do it in your own strength. I think that teaches the same thing. So I believe that everybody becomes a Christian through the work of the Spirit, and we receive the Spirit when we are born again. I believe that. 
However, I also believe that there are subsequent moments of receiving the Spirit. Some might call it being baptized in the Spirit. I don't know if I would put that phrase in it or not, but I believe there are subsequent moments of being filled or baptized or receiving the Spirit post-becoming a Christian. And I believe that's just not it. Because sometimes classic baptism in the Spirit theology means that's it, you've had it. I actually believe that the New Testament is far too limited, in other words. I think the New Testament teaches that you should go on receiving the Spirit. Be, if, in other words, if you like to use this phrase, be baptized again in the Spirit and again in the Spirit. Peter powerfully receives the Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost, and in Acts 4, he receives the Spirit again. So if Peter needed to do that in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and went through Pentecost, I think we do. Now, I think some of our issue is language. You see, the phrase, the word that we translate as baptized, uh, when we use that, which is a, is a good translation, we tend to think of baptized in terms of being baptized in water. So we kind of struggle to get our heads around. Well, you wouldn't baptize someone in water more than once. That's like a one-off moment. But the word baptized can also be translated as immersed in or drenched in. When you think in those terms, it unlocks a slightly different way of thinking about it. You are immersed, you've been immersed in the Spirit, now go on being immersed in the Spirit, and go on being immersed in the Spirit again and again and again. Ephesians 5, which is the passage Andrew taught out of last week, where it says, now be, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, basically means be continually filled, repeatedly, not just once, but again and again. And I think as you pursue that and you ask God for that, some of those moments can be very dramatic and can appear and seem and are as distinct from other experiences or maybe even when you became a Christian. Tom Wright, who's a well-known theologian, puts it like this about 1 Corinthians 12. We were plunged into the Spirit to begin with, drinking from the Spirit day by day. I, I probably even want to go further. I think you can get plunged into the Spirit again and again. Now, this is kind of how I read this. Let me tell you why I'm comfortable with this. I'm comfortable with this for a few reasons. One is I can explain it biblically. I can take you to passages like I have done and say, this is what I think it means. This is why I think it means this. It makes sense of my experience and the experience of people I know who've had very clearly distinct experiences post-becoming Christians. It means that we avoid putting Christians into categories where we go, well, you've got the Spirit, but you haven't which is what can happen when you get really tight on this theology. The only categories that I can see in the New Testament when it comes to the Spirit is about people who have received Jesus and become Christians and people who have not. That's the only categorization I can see in the Bible about people who have the Spirit or don't. And, which I, this is so important, I think this view encourages me to ask for and expect for more of the Spirit as I go on. More breath, more wind in the Spirit. You see, what good is being able to windsurf for 10 minutes with a sail up if you have to spend 50 minutes swimming back into the bay? That's no good at all. And that's why he writes to Galatians, Paul writes and goes, you began with the Spirit, but now you're just going to try and swim back to the beach on your own? You're just going to try and do that all in your own strength? You know, you need to keep catching the breath of God. I need God to keep doing this work in me. Not once, not just twice, but again and again, and again, and again. And that is why I don't really mind if you agree or disagree with my view on baptism of the Spirit. It's fine with me. Forty years ago, this was a big debate in churches, because basically the big debate was people believed the Spirit wasn't for today, and other people argued it was. So the line was clearly drawn on the issue, is this Spirit for today or not? In the UK, not that everybody believes this, but that is, I think the discussion has changed. 
a lot of churches would believe, no, no, we believe in the ministry of the Spirit. So we believe in the Holy Spirit. So I don't mind if you want to hold to your view that baptism in the Spirit works like this and this. All I would say is if you hold that view, you should be able to back it up somewhere and be able to say why you think that rather than, well, I've just kind of absorbed it from other people. But I don't mind because I, the reason I don't mind is I don't think it's the most important thing. What I think is the most important thing is this, is that we are hungry for and expect for and ask for more of the Spirit than we've experienced up until now. You see, the big problem with tight theology on baptism in the Spirit is we kind of go, it was a one-off moment, and then you just kind of get on. Whereas actually, the Bible seems to me, and the whole tone of the New Testament seems to me, that we need to be dependent on, walking with, attentive to, asking for more of the Spirit, more of the Spirit. Gordon Fee, who's a well-known writer, puts it like this. Paul does not see life in the Spirit as the result of a single experience of the Spirit at the entry point. He simply does not have that static view of the Spirit that so many later Christians seem to have. That the Spirit is given once for all at conversion, and after that we're pretty much left to our own devices to live out the Christian life. For Paul, the Spirit is the key to all of Christian life. I think that's right. And he implies frequently that there are further ongoing times of receiving the Spirit's empowering. I, I agree with that statement. I totally agree with it. You see, I think our big challenge is not how you define your theology of baptism in the Spirit. I think our big challenge is, can we actually cultivate a heart which says to God, I want to be more dependent on you? That's the big challenge, not how you define tightly your theology. It's, can I actually cultivate a heart of dependence? Because I think we all naturally veer toward wanting to be independent of God. I don't know if you've ever driven a car which has the tracking is off, you know, when the wheels are not aligned properly. You ever had that? And it tends to pull you one way. You ever had that? It means it's not necessarily you're a really bad driver. I'm always going left, okay? It's because something wrong with the car. The tracking's off. Well, there's something a bit wrong with our hearts. The tracking is off because we always want to pull away. We would say to God, yeah, I'm glad I'm a Christian, but now I'm just going to get on my own way. Thank you very much. But it seems to me we need to get the tracking realigned so that we learn to cultivate a heart that says, God, I need more of you that I can't do this on my own, that I haven't come to the end of you, I haven't experienced everything you've got for me, I can't put you in a neat theological box all the time. I want more of you in my life. That We need to readdress the tracking. As we close, one last comment I want to make. Throughout, We will do it today and throughout this season. We're encouraging people to be prayed for, to receive the Spirit. And I want to, I want to say to you, you should take advantage of those moments. But I also want to say to you something else about ministry moments. We need to be cautious when we have a ministry time that we don't define the level of the significance of the Spirit's activity in our lives by how great the physical manifestations are in that moment. Okay? Some people, when you pray for them, will experience things very dramatically. That's great. I don't have a problem with that. Okay? But other people will seemingly not experience very much physically. In and of themselves, that is not a definition of what is going on in that person's life. That's probably more just a kind of, it's just probably more their physiology than anything else. Let me give you a little bit of a story from my own past. Many years ago, I was at a meeting in another church in South Lee, actually, and there was a ministry time going on, and we were praying for lots of different people, and everybody around me, as they got prayed for, was like experiencing God powerfully. 
right? They're going down on the floor. There's things happening, people staggering around drunk. It's all happening around me. I am like this. I am, in Elton John's words, I'm still standing, okay? Like, literally, there's like nothing happening physically to me, okay? And everybody else like, bam, 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 bam. Well, at that meeting was my now wife, who we, we didn't even know each other. Sarah spots me from across a crowded ministry room. If I had hit the deck, we'd probably never have met, okay? So, just so you know, it's not such a bad thing not always going down. And remember this, when the New Testament says, be filled with the Spirit and go on being filled with the Spirit, I don't think what you had in mind at that point was nip down to the Wednesday night encounter meeting and be filled with the Spirit. As good as that is, what he's saying is cultivate a lifestyle where you ask for God and you ask for more of God, whether it's in a meeting or not. Remember, the issue is not how physically you experience his presence. The issue is the product of that in your life. If you hit the deck when someone prays for you, great. But it's about how you get up, which is the issue. When Jesus is asked to summarize the law, he says two things. Well, the law basically says this, love God with all your heart and love people. And if you are producing more of that in your life through the Spirit's activity, then clearly God is at work in your heart. But if you're getting loads of prayer ministry times, but you're becoming more tight with money and more selfish, then something's not quite right. Because it's about the person you are growing into. That is the evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. So I want to encourage you in this series, whatever your view in theology is on the baptism of the Spirit, believe for, ask for more of the Spirit in your life. Wait for, expect for, and cultivate a heart which says, God, I need more of you every day. Amen.